Imagine a group of people coming together for the sole purpose of expressing their gratitude to God. It's almost unheard of in today's world. But as Dr. David Jeremiah explains today on Turning Point, such an outpouring of thanks was vital in helping the nation of Israel restore fellowship with God, and it can do the same for us. To introduce his message, Giving Thanks for God's Goodness, here's David. Whenever you think of the book of Nehemiah, you always think of the building of the walls of Jerusalem. That's what normally occupies our attention when we study that book. But you know, uh, Nehemiah's main task was to rebuild the wall around the city, which he did. And uh, the interesting thing is that in the book of Nehemiah, the wall disappeared from view from chapter 7 through chapter 11, so that the other aspects of rebuilding could be highlighted the spiritual rebuilding that was necessary for a people that had been out of touch with God for so long. Rebuilding the wall wasn't enough. After all, the original wall had not been enough to deter the Babylonians who took the Jews into captivity. The people needed the spiritual protection that comes with walking in obedience to God. So chapters 7 through 11 detail the spiritual revival that took place under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we've been talking about the building blocks in that particular part of Nehemiah. We've called this series 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal. These are not frozen in history. They are timeless principles that work even today. So uh, today we're going to talk about gratitude and why that's important in our growth process. Before I do that, let me just tell you again that our resource for the month of January is the book by O.S. Hawkins called the prayer code. It is 210 pages, 40 different prayers from the 360 prayers that are in the Bible. Do you know the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was to teach them to pray? Perhaps like us, they wanted a richer prayer life but didn't know how to go about it. In the prayer code, O.S. Hawkins invites you to explore the prayers in Scripture such as David's prayers in the Psalms, Jesus' prayer for all believers, and the early church's prayers for courage and protection. If you will do this, it will transform your prayer life as you learn to pray powerfully to the God who longs to draw you near to him. This book, The Prayer Code, is a wonderful resource. You want to have this at your hand in your home and will likely use it many times in the future. Ask for your copy when you send your gift to Turning Point today. And now let's go to Nehemiah chapter 12 and learn about giving thanks for God's goodness. Turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 12. We're moving to the end of this wonderful book. Obviously, the first part of the 12th chapter has a number of names in it, and we won't spend our time there. But if you notice in our study, we have been talking about the 10 steps to spiritual renewal. We have looked at Nehemiah 8, beginning as the second half of the book does, and we have talked about the things we need to do to get back into fellowship with the Lord or to create renewal in our own lives. One is we need to get back to the book, Nehemiah 8. Two, we need to get serious about obedience. Third, we need to get concerned about sin. Fourth, we need to get caught up in worship. Fifth, we need to become accountable for our conduct. Sixth, we need to take a pledge to give. Seventh, we need to offer ourselves for service. Eighth, we need to give thanks for God's goodness. 
These are just activities that are a part of the renewal process. Now, the 12th chapter of the book of Nehemiah is a very interesting, blunt reminder to us of an unfinished task. If you study it carefully, you will realize that from the 6th chapter of Nehemiah to the 12th chapter of Nehemiah, there is hardly a mention of the wall at all. And yet the whole book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Back in chapter 6 and verse 15, we read, So the wall was finished in the 20th and 5th day of the month in 50 and 2 days. And then from chapter 6 all the way over to chapter 12, it's like the wall has disappeared. What has happened? What was seemingly a finished wall is left, and it is left in order that all of the things we have been talking about might be instituted for the people's sake. For you see, once the project was completed, the most important thing in the whole process was to make sure now that the people of God were ready to enjoy their new heritage. It's one thing to build the wall and be excited about the project. It's quite another thing to understand that now that it is finished, there are new opportunities and new responsibilities and new requirements that are upon you. If you go back to the chapters that intervene, chapter 6 and chapter 12, you will see that what is being done to the people in Nehemiah's day now is the wall project is finished, but before they move in, as we learned about, there is a tremendous revival going on among the people in terms of their responding to the Word of God and coming to grips with obedience and beginning to recognize their individual personal responsibility before God. There is an interruption between the completion of the wall and the celebration of the completion of the wall. And someone has observed that, in essence, when you move through chapters 1 through 6, you see the wall, and as you look at the wall, you notice that the wall is having a tremendous effect upon the enemies of God. Remember how when they saw the wall going up, all the enemies said, you know, we can't let this happen. If they get that fortified city, then we will no longer be able to hold ourselves against these people. And so all the enemies of God saw the wall, and it was a real frightening thing to them. But now, from chapter 6 on, the wall is up, and the wall is no longer a matter of a problem to the enemies of God. Now the wall is beginning to say something to the people of God. We learn how hard it was to get some of them to move inside the wall. They learned to be comfortable out in their urban community, and now they were being asked. In fact, they were even being drafted to come and live back inside of the city. You see, what we have here on the one hand is that the wall produces an appreciation of what it meant to be on the outside, until it was finished, now the Jews have to learn how to appreciate what it's like to be on the inside. The Church of Jesus Christ is like that. On the outside, we face it as unbelievers, but sometimes after we move on to the inside of the church, it takes us a while to understand what it's like to appreciate who we are and what we are in Jesus Christ. Now, in the 12th chapter, we discover that once the wall is completed, and they are ready now to observe the celebration of the completed project, look at verse 27 that they're going to have a dedication of this wall. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singings and with cymbals and psalteries and with hearts. Now, once again, let me say this is the first time for five chapters that we have any mention whatsoever of the wall. You will notice that the Spirit of God uses the word dedication here in this text. And the word dedication in the Old Testament has two possible meanings. The first Hebrew word means to consecrate or set apart to God. But there's another word for dedication that means to mark the beginning of a new thing. And that's the word that's used here. 
They are marking the beginning of a new thing. Isn't it interesting? We look at the dedication as a celebration of the completion of the project, but the people of God are being taught that this is not the completion of a project, but this is the beginning of a new thing. Quite often when churches build buildings, they focus on the construction of the facility and they pour all of their efforts into the building of the facility. Once the facility is completed, their goal has been fulfilled and they haven't seen beyond the goal to the purpose of the building. And so we have these unbelievable statistics about how most pastors don't survive the first two years after a new building is completed because the folks have focused on a project and once it's completed, they've lost sight of their goals. Now, God has worked diligently with the people of Israel to keep that from happening. The wall is up. Now they're going to dedicate themselves to their new life as a people of God. Now, I want you to notice briefly just four things that happen as the result of their moving inside the walls and the completion of this project. First of all, there was a purification that took place. Notice verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. At the dedication of this wall, there was a tremendous realization that there needed to be a purification of the people. Sometimes you and I don't understand when we first come to Christ how important that is, but we aren't saved very long and hopefully not a part of the church for very long before we begin to realize that God wants pure people. He wants people who will live holy and righteous life before him. When you come to grips with who Jesus is and when you understand what the Bible says about the nature of this world, if you really believe that, you cannot live your life the way everybody else does. You will be called to a sense of holiness and righteousness in your own walk with him, and it will be a constant goad within your spirit to walk in fellowship with him as you have not before. If you and I could only understand the principle and appreciate the fact that God sets forth for us of holiness and righteousness, I can tell you one thing for sure. Many of the petty little things that come up for discussion among us would never hit the agenda. The things that we argue about, whether we can do or whether we shouldn't do, we would be so consumed with our desire to please God that all of those things would be dissolved in the periphery of our lives. There was something else in this passage of Scripture that they were called forth to do, not just purification. Beginning at verse 31, we come to the second thing. Notice in chapter 12, verse 31. Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall toward the dung gate, and after them, and we have the list of it, and the other company, verse 38 of them that gave thanks, went over against them, and I after them. Now, we learn here in this passage of Scripture that the wall they built that was around the city was wide enough for people to walk on top of it. Remember when we were studying the book of Daniel, we learned that the walls around the city of Babylon were wide enough so that four chariots, horse-driven chariots, could be driven across the top of the wall all around the city. Hard for us to imagine anything like that, but here this city wall was built in such a way that large groups of people could march on the top of the wall. And we are told that the people proceeded and they got on top of the wall and they had a celebration. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. I don't know of any church that ever celebrated the completion of project by marching around on the roof of the building, but it's biblical according to my understanding of this text. Now, I want you to notice that, first of all, the group was divided into two sections. One group of the people got on top of the wall on the right, and the other got on top of the wall on the left. 
Ezra followed after one group as the scribe, and Nehemiah followed after the other group. And they kind of walked around in different directions on top of the wall that they had completed, celebrating what God had done for them. It is one of the most thrilling spectacles you will ever see. If the first thing that happened was purification, the second thing that happened was procession. There was a celebration and an excitement about what God had done. Now, some folks say, what was the purpose of this? Were they showing off? Were they trying to say to all their enemies, uh, look at us, we did this that you said we couldn't do? No. It wasn't that Nehemiah and Ezra were trying to stimulate the enemy. They were trying to cause the people to understand the union they had in God and in the finished project. If you'll notice down in your Bibles, you will discover that the priests were there and the princes were there and the people were there. These were all representatives of the entire class of people that were involved in the fellowship of the people themselves. All the representatives of all the classes of the nation were there, and they were there to participate in the celebration of what they had accomplished. Let me tell you why they were all excited about participating in the celebration. Are you listening? Because they had all been involved in the project of building the wall. What a sad thing it is when God's people watch a project unfold in front of them and see the sacred core of faithful do the work. And then the project is done, and those faithful people rejoice in what God has done, but since they've been standing on the outside watching the whole thing, their rejoicing is rather empty. The procession around the wall, the celebration representing all the people was because all of the people had been involved in the process. You know, we are a non-participatory culture. Let's face it. Most of us have worked hard to set up our defense mechanisms so that nobody can get to us to get us involved in anything we don't want to do. We want to go home at night and watch television and relax after a hard day at work and don't mess up my life by asking me to do something else. And yet somehow in our twisted thinking, we have this idea that because we have done that, we're still going to get all the blessings that come at the end of the way. And my friends, it isn't going to happen that way. If you aren't involved in what God is doing here now, if you are not giving of yourself sacrificially in your effort and your service, there's going to be a time of great emptiness in your life when we march around the wall someday. I can promise that to you. If you want to know the joy of Easter Sunday, you have to experience some of the pain of Good Friday, the procession. And then I want you to notice that the third thing that happened was a proclamation. Notice verse 43. And that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Can you imagine that? I've often taken comfort in the fact that the singing wasn't heard afar off, the joy. Some of you that can't sing a lick, you just remember, you don't have to sing. You just need to be joyous. Make a joyous noise unto the Lord. Their joy was wrapped up in who they were in God. Now watch carefully. The joy didn't come as the building project was completed. The joy came clear over here. The building project was completed, and God took 
time to work in their hearts through dedication, through facing the sin in their lives, through obedience, through getting back to the Word of God, through getting involved in giving. All of that inward thing is happening. Now they're marching around the wall and their joy is so great. Notice in this verse, joy and rejoice and great joy and the joy of Jerusalem. And, well, it's just everywhere. Excitement and joy. Somebody has said that joy is spelled J-O-Y, and that the way you understand joy as a Christian is that joy is Jesus and you with nothing in between. I like those visual kind of things that I can't forget. Jesus and you with nothing in between. That's where joy is. Joy isn't in a project even. Joy isn't in the finished wall, as exciting as that was. The joy in the hearts of these people was in the fact that the project had brought them together, but God the Holy Spirit had worked in their hearts and had purified them, and they were now righteous and holy before God, and now they had joy in their hearts. We as God's people ought to be filled with joy. If any people in the world ought to have joy, it should be us. I remember reading one time that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was chided in his preaching because he used a fair amount of humor when he preached. And when he was chided about that with a twinkle in his eye, he replied, if only you knew how much I hold back, you would commend me. (laughs) There's a man filled with joy. The Bible says that the Jews laughed on the wall. They rejoiced over God's provision. They sang together. Their joy flooded the hillside so that all could hear and be glad. And had their circumstances changed? No, the circumstances really hadn't changed that much. They were the ones that had changed. Remember in Proverbs 17:22, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine. Well, there's another verse about joy that you may not have remembered. It's also in the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs 15:13, and it says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Have you ever noticed... When your heart is sad, your spirit is broken. These folks were filled with joy. Their spirits were uplifted because they had banded together to do a work for God. God had worked in their hearts. They had purified themselves. And now as a one great big chorus of excited people, they praised the Lord. We read in verse 44, And at that time there were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the firstfruits, and for the tithes, to gather unto them out of the fields of the cities of the portions of the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. And both the singers and the porters kept the word of their God and the word of the purification according to the commandment of David and of Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old were chief of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the portions of the singers and of the porters every day his portion. And they sanctified holy things unto the Levites, and the Levites sanctified them unto the children of Aaron. And I call this last thing that happened here in this process provision. They were so excited about what God had done for them already, they couldn't wait to get involved in seeing him do something for them again. And the Bible says that once they were instituted now within the city walls and they'd had their dedication and their praise service, their thanksgiving turned into thanks living. They weren't any longer happy just to say thank you to the Lord with their lips, but now they wanted to say thank you to the Lord with their gifts as well. And they began to look around for people who were in need. They realized that they were responsible to care for the Levites because that's the way God had instituted that they be provided for. 
It was a tribute to the healthy atmosphere among the people of God that when they were in a revival themselves, they looked around to see what they could do for others who were outside of themselves. It should never, ever have to be our experience as God's people to plead with people to help supply the need in a church or in a ministry. There should always be a supply if we're where we ought to be. Stewardship is related to lordship. It is lordship. And if we are where we ought to be spiritually, if all of God's people within the community of believers were where they ought to be, we would not only be a thankful people, but we would be a people who gave over and abundantly. And many of us in this congregation could easily be qualified like that. You see, thanksgiving is always followed by thanks living. How can I do less than give him my best and live for him forever? After all, he's done for me. I'll tell you what, I never heard of a church that died because it gave too much. I never heard of God's people dying because they gave too much. The only thing I have ever heard, and it has been consistently true, that when a church gives and when a people give, God just blesses them abundantly. I, in all the years I've been pastoring, I've never had anybody come to me ever one time and say, Pastor Jeremiah, you know, I made a terrible mistake last year. I gave too much money to God. Never once. You say, don't be facetious. You know, if we cannot trust God in our stewardship, if we cannot trust God in our giving, then we ought to quit playing church. We ought to just shut down the doors and get out of business. Because God's promise to us is that if we will trust him, he will supply our needs. And he has never one time ever reneged on his promise. He's the Lord God of heaven. He is the immutable, unchanging God who is always faithful to us in every way. We are called to be stewards, as these folks were, of God's grace. Strickland Gilliland has written these words in poetic form. He said, Steward I, and not possessor of the wealth entrusted me, what were God himself the holder would his disposition be? Then I ask myself each morning, every noon, and every night, as I view his gentle goodness with an ever-new delight, steward only, never owner of the time that he has lent. How were he my life's custodian would my years on earth be spent? Thus I ask myself each hour as I plod my pilgrim way, steeped in gratefulest amazement in his mercy day by day, steward only, not possessor, of the part of him that's I. Clearer grows this truth and dearer as the years go slipping by. May I softly go and humbly, head and heart, in reverence bent, that I may not fear to show him how my stewardship was spent. In old English style, Strickland has reminded us that we are not possessors, we are stewards of our wealth. What would God do if he were doing it? He reminds us that we are stewards, not possessors of our time. How would God spend our time if he were spending it? We are stewards, not possessors of ourselves. How would God live within our skin if he walked where we walk? Those are the questions, very important questions, answered magnificently by the people in Nehemiah's day. And for many of us in our day, the answer is still out. What will we do with the stewardship that God has entrusted to us? Are you ready to answer that question? Have you thought deeply about 
taking a new step in a new direction for the Lord in this new year. All of these building blocks, these disciplines we have been talking about are a part of the process. And you know, if the Jews of the Old Testament could do it and be revived and spiritually renewed, there is no excuse for us not taking these principles to heart, implementing them in our lives, and beginning to practice them every day. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about doing away with compromise. I don't think there's a lesson that could have been written any more needed than that one in our particular time today, when people are vacillating all over the place about what they claim to believe. We're going to learn about having a steel rod in your back tomorrow and how in today's culture, that's what we need. We need some just plain old simple courage and conviction, and uh, we need to do away with compromise That's in Nehemiah 13. You might want to look at it before we get together tomorrow. But we'll spend a couple of days talking about that as we draw near to the conclusion of our study of the book of Nehemiah, part two and 10 steps to spiritual renewal. I'm David Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to order your copy of the prayer code by O.S. Hawkins. Ask for it when you send your gift this month. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional Every Day with Jesus is available now, filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture. It will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible, drawing on more than 40 years of study by Dr. David Jeremiah. Take your personal Bible study deeper with unique introductions to each book of the Bible. 55 full-page articles exploring the essential themes of the Christian life. 8,000 study notes with insightful and practical content, an extensive cross-reference system, and helpful sidebars that extend to topics beyond the study notes. You can also take advantage of online resources available to you at jeremiahstudybible.com. Great for individual or small group studies, this Bible is available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print with several cover options. For more information or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash jsb. 
The famous actor John Wayne had an interesting way of looking at the future. He said, Tomorrow comes into us at midnight, very clean. It's perfect when it arrives and it puts itself in our hands. Tomorrow hopes we've learned something from yesterday. But sometimes, even at midnight, when a new day arrives, we are still burdened with concerns from yesterday. That's where one of the Bible's greatest promises comes in. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says that God's mercies and compassions are new every morning without fail. When God's mercy is new every morning, tomorrow is truly a brand new day. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's mercy and compassion on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.